0: Good to sing with you all this morning. Good to worship and hearing the word and in prayer and in song. It is good to gather and be reminded of God's great grace toward us. He is gracious to us. Uh, This morning, we are going to continue our series through the book of Acts. Uh, We are going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning and for the next few weeks, Lord willing. Uh, If you are using the Bibles that are in front of you, it's on page 923. I'm going to read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Uh, For those who may be guests this morning, my name is Jason Tyrell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy, and I do have the privilege this morning of leading us in our time in the Word. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, and the apostles, and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses." After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has, been, that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is living and active. Your word is without error, sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you for your word, and I pray now, Lord, that you would... Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word proclaimed. Prepare our hearts and minds to receive from you. Remind us of how gracious you are to us. Father, we pray not just from this pulpit, but from many in our area and around the world, the true gospel would be proclaimed. I want to pray right now for Larry uh, as he is preaching over to our uh, brothers and sisters at Risen Christ in Philadelphia that, uh, that you would bless. And encourage and strengthen them uh, through that time. We also want to pray for uh, joy of Williamstown as they are gathered right now and for Ben as he brings the word. Lord, work among your people by your power, by your spirit, for your glory and for our good. Prepare our hearts to receive from you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In just a little while, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. What is the significance of the Lord's Supper? Not what does it mean to you, but what, what does the Lord's Supper mean? What is it for? You don't have to answer out loud. Just ponder in your head what the answer to that question is. The Lord's Supper took the place of the Passover meal, and it is the unifying meal of the body of Christ. We unite around the table of the Lord and together we are reminded of and we declare a truth. What is the truth that we declare when we take the Lord's Supper? That the body of Jesus Christ was broken for us. That the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for us. That we are banking all of our hope on his finished work for us. That even though we continue to fall short of the glory of God, though we have no merits in and of ourselves by which we show ourselves deserving of such a sacrifice, the Son of God still loves us and gave his life for us. Our right standing before God the Father at this very moment, believers in Christ is based on nothing we have done and everything that Christ has done. We are partakers of the new covenant in his blood. Jesus himself said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light today's passage in acts brings us to a point of serious debate in the early church that has repercussions that that echo down even to today at the end of chapter 14, Luke recounts how Paul and Barnabas made their way back to Antioch. They stopped in various places. They were This is the end of their first missionary journey. And they're going back to the home base of Antioch. And they went through Pisidia and Pamphylia and Perga and Italia, continuing to preach the gospel wherever they went. And we have no account of what actually happened in those places because it seems that Luke, w- <coughs> excuse me, was trying to drive us. <laughs> Swallowed my spit. That's fun. Uh, <coughs> it seems that Luke is trying to drive us back to Antioch quickly. So they return to their home base, and it says Luke says at the end of fourteen, they spent you know no small amount of time. They're going to be back in Antioch for quite a while. When they return, they share the stories of what the Lord did through them and the places where they went. And as they spent time at Antioch, some men came from Judea, where Jerusalem is, and taught the church that unless the believers were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they could not be saved. Do you see that in there in verse 1? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a big deal. That is, they're saying, faith in Christ is a fine thing. But you must add to your faith obedience to the Mosaic law in order to actually be saved. Circumcision was seen as the initiating sign into the Mosaic covenant. So these teachers weren't just saying, hey, your guys need to be circumcised and then you can do whatever you want. They were saying, That's the initiating sign, and they have to follow the whole law. They've got to follow the Mosaic Law if they want to be saved. And they're making very clear. A person, I've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. A person could not be saved apart from that. Could not be declared right with God apart from that. How can someone know... They are right with God. Is there a bigger question that we'll ever have to answer in our lives? How does a person know that they're right with God? It can be easy for us 21st century Christians to dismiss the notion that circumcision is required because that's not the air we breathe. We We don't have that debate among ourselves But can you imagine how earth-shattering it would have been for a new believer in Christ of Jewish descent in the book of Acts to consider that their faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant was not of saving importance? That the Lord was literally doing a, a new thing, a thing that he had promised long ago. He repeatedly promised it to him that he was going to do this new thing. And more than that, if this new thing is true, it means that God saves people apart from their works. Now, if you were a wise Jew who truly understood the demands of the law and truly understood yourself, you would know that your works were never sufficient to merit your salvation. Never. The church at Antioch rightly understood that this was a matter of first importance. They have teachers coming in and they're saying, you can't be saved unless you do this. What does the church have to say about salvation and righteousness before God. Paul, Barnabas, and some others from Antioch are sent. They're sent to Jerusalem to have this matter discerned, to ask this question to the elders there. As they go on their way, they stop in Phoenicia and Samaria, and they tell the stories of what God had done among the Gentiles. And as they arrive in Jerusalem, they continue to do the same. Yet even as they do this... We see in verse 5, they encounter what Luke describes as believers from the party of the Pharisees. So, we have no reason to doubt that they they were believers in Christ who still weren't sure about what this new thing was. What it meant for their old way of life. And so these believers from the Pharisees reiterate that converts from the Gentiles have to be made to follow the Mosaic law, have to be circumcised. This is a seminal moment in the life of the church. They knew there was the promise of a new covenant. They knew that Jesus had spoken of the new covenant being initiated through his death and resurrection. It's one thing to know those facts and quite another to consider that when Jesus said new, he really meant it. That when God promised the new covenant, he really meant it. He really meant that we are no longer under the law in the same way that the Jews were. The conversion of the Gentiles seemed to be revealing that the Lord was working in hearts apart from circumcision, apart from the Mosaic covenant. So what did the church have to say about it? With the rest of our time this morning, we're going to consider the deliberations and the decisions of the Jerusalem council. Peter And James, the brother of Jesus, will be the two spokesmen as the two pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And they were also two men who had encountered and spent time with the risen Lord Jesus. I just I was struck by that as I was preparing this week. You don't we don't want to lose the awe and wonder of, of the throwaway the things that get treated as throwaway things in church services. So when we read the Bible and I say, this is the word of the Lord, there's a reason we say that. Because we believe that the Bible is the word of the Lord. Without error, all powerful, dividing to the the marrow, joints and marrow, soul and spirit. When we say things like, hey, these guys had spent some time with the risen Jesus Christ. That's unbelievable, right? Right? They're going to talk to Peter and James who were with Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. Now when James later speaks of himself, he speaks of himself as the servant of the Lord Jesus. This is the man who didn't even believe that he was who he said he was when he walked this earth. And then after Jesus was raised from the dead, James becomes a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. And so they go back. This council is going to be convened, and I want to focus on three things. The matter at hand, the matter weighed, and the matter settled. The matter at hand, the matter weighed, and the matter settled. And I'm going to say this right out of the gate. I was writing my sermon last week, and, uh, and I'm, going to, I'm going to say that I went back to last week's sermon and I threw in an end point. There was good stuff in there. I should have just not said any of it. About, it was just too much. It was, just, it was good stuff. It was worth more time. I got to the end of writing this week's sermon. And I'm like, I'm going to take two minutes on something that I want to take 20 minutes on. And so I just decided, I'm not going to talk at all in this sermon about, just so you can see it and so you can know it, verses 20 and 21. But, It fits very well into next week's passage, so I'm going to spend a lot of time next week, Lord willing, focusing on those verses. Just want you to see, or want you to know, when we get to the end of the sermon, like, well, he didn't even talk about this, and I have a lot of questions about what 20 and 21 mean. So we'll get to it, I promise you, if the Lord wills, that I live until next week. All right, three points. The matter at hand, the matter weighed, the matter settled. So the matter at hand, I've already shared a bit about the matter at hand, so we're not going to linger long here. But I do want to drive it home because it is the heart of the text. Are people saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, or must we add works to our salvation? To be saved. We read in Romans earlier in the service, and if time permitted, we could read all of the first nine chapters of Romans or all of Galatians where Paul labored to make clear to the hearer, to the believer in Christ, that you are saved apart from the law by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Declared righteous apart from the law. Paul himself uh, submitted this teaching first to the brothers. He talks about this in Galatians 2. I don't think that this is the encounter he's talking about in Galatians 2. I think that the, what he, his time of going and presenting to the brothers, making sure he was teaching the right thing, I think that happened earlier, probably somewhere in the Acts 11, end of Acts 11 range. Uh, but he, he did. He submitted himself to the brothers in Jerusalem and said, am I teaching the right thing? This is what I'm teaching. Is it the right thing? Is this actually true? While the setting may be different now, we too are always at risk of trying to smuggle our works into the salvation equation. It may reveal itself in a a self-righteous pursuit of trying to work to earn the favor of God that we have already been declared to have in Jesus Christ. There are many who do that. It may be the burden of daily living where we think that Jesus is looking at us and saying that's not quite enough. Little more and you'll be there. Little more and I'll be happy with you. Little more and I'll be satisfied. Do a little more and then I'll welcome you. Then I'll call you my child. Or maybe thinking of ourselves as better than others because we are better at being Christians, right? We are, aren't we? We're so much better than other Christians by whatever means and and measure we we adapt, right? Why aren't you more like me? Why don't you do things the way I do them? Do any of these resonate with you? Maybe all of them. We're, I mean, we're a mess apart from God's grace, right? Like, I can at the same time say I, I doubt my, uh, I have struggled with assurance, and I also think I'm the greatest person on earth. All within the span of an hour. <laughs> this debate has huge meaning and application for us. So they come together. Now we're moving on to the matter being weighed. They come together to weigh the matter. And it's a really interesting scene that Luke describes. He says, uh, where are we at here? Verse 6? Yeah, 7. After there had been much debate. So, So you have this picture of this council convened and a debate happening. That all sides can be heard, given the opportunity to share their thoughts and their position. Debate can be a very profitable thing when done rightly and humbly. Unfortunately, we live in a world that has lost the ability to debate properly and humbly. Much of the debate we see, whether it's on television or social media, revolves around attacks on the other person's whatever, character traits, or creating arguments that don't actually exist and then tearing them down, right? That's what we see. But I want you to know, debate is not a bad thing. It's a good thing to to weigh a matter, to hear the sides of a matter, and then submit it to the word of God. And so, after the period of debate, Peter stands and he reminds the gathering. He reminds the gathering of what had happened in his life and ministry, right? Peter was the first apostle to the Gentiles, right? Who did he go to visit? You remember this? It was two months ago it got preached on. Who did he go to visit? Come on. Good grief. That's a layup. Yes, Cornelius. He went to see Cornelius. Peter really wanted to go to Cornelius, right? He was eager. He was like, when can I get to the Gentiles? No. He, he has, the Lord appears to him in a dream, and he tells him about, you know, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, never. I would never do that. I would never touch something. I would never eat something that's unclean. And the Lord says to Peter, don't you call unclean what the Lord calls clean. And then he goes and he brings the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And they believe and the Holy Spirit falls upon them in the same exact way that it did on the Jews. All of this against Peter's sensibilities. Against what he wanted. Contingent on no other work. Now Peter gets to the heart of the matter in verse 10. So he he shares that. He's he's reminding the gathering here in Jerusalem. Hey, remember? Do you remember this? And hey, here's the real real heart of the matter. Counsel. Verse 10. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Those who want the Gentile believers to be circumcised and to submit to the Mosaic law for righteousness are forgetting one really, really important item. By that standard, even the greatest Jew has fallen short. Every single one ever, except for one Jew. One Jew did it perfectly. Every single one. We are about to place this burden on the Gentiles, this burden of law-keeping for salvation, ignoring the reason that Jesus came in the first place. The history of Israel up to that very moment was a history of failure. Read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament, and I dare you to walk away from your Old Testament reading thinking, you know what? Those Israelites were pretty good. (laughs) They couldn't be good for any length of time. They didn't keep the law. They worshiped foreign gods. They were repeatedly judged for their failures. They lost their nation, they lost their temple, they'd be judged and repent, then go back to what they did before, be judged and then repent and go back to what they did before, over and over, repeated offenders, rejectors of the law of God for thousands of years. And now they want to put these Gentile believers right back under that same burden that they were not able to carry ever Gentile believers who had been cleansed by the free grace of Christ, just like the Jewish believers had, under the same burden, Peter says, this should not be. If you have your Bibles open, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Listen to the words of Paul in Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What do you think he's referring to? The same thing Peter's referring to in Acts chapter 15. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision... If we had time I would have you read the first read the first yeah, let's do it first few verses of Romans chapter 8 we read some Romans 3 let's read a little Romans 8 Starting in verse 1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life, I'm sorry, I'm going back, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is what these people in Acts chapter 15 are trying to get the people to submit again to. The law that shows us our sin the law that shows us that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses before a holy God, but offers no power to become alive. Peter says, Let's affirm together what we know to be true. We cannot earn our salvation, never could. Salvation is not faith plus works. Salvation has come to the Gentiles in just the same way it came to the Jews, by grace. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's what Peter says. We believe we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Brothers and sisters in Christ who plan to eat from the table today, let the table remind us that everything we have, everything we are, and everything we hope for is grace. Unmerited favor. The law of God reveals that we have fallen short of his standards. Reveals that in us, doesn't it? The law of God is good, totally righteous, perfect. And it reveals how far short we still fall of keeping his law. How far short we still fall meeting his standards of holiness. It still reveals that. But the Lord's Supper reminds us that we have what we have and we are what we are by grace alone. We do not add to our salvation. This is a finished work that we celebrate. We do not add to the sacrifice Jesus made. It is perfect. Nothing more is needed. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. Amen? We do not merit our salvation by future works of obedience. Maybe that's where we really struggle. All right, Jesus did this for me, but I've got to keep myself by my works. Everything we have is grace, and everything we do is worship, gratitude, thankfulness. Not not meritorious, not trying to earn, not getting back on the treadmill of you got to do this to be saved. All that the believer in Christ does by the power of the Holy Spirit is worship. Peter is telling this council that they need to see that the Lord is calling them to bank on something more steadfast than a person's ability to keep the law. They are called to bank all of their hope and bring all of the world the good news that salvation is by grace through faith. Cleansing is by grace. Hope is found in Christ alone. Do you know that today? Hope is found in Christ alone. This is truly the good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Peter silenced the assembly. The debate was over. They listened as Paul and Barnabas told the stories of what God had done through them on their journeys. And when they finished sharing, James spoke up. The fact that James spoke last tells us that he was viewed as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, We probably should be of the understanding that Peter had been out traveling to strengthen the churches of the dispersion, those Jews who had gone out from Jerusalem. But James was seen as the pillar of the church at Jerusalem. And he wants the people to consider these stories that Paul and Barnabas and Peter are sharing as the fulfillment... Of the Old Testament promises in the prophets. He could have gone to many places. If you have time later today, you could look at Jeremiah 12, Zechariah 8, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 49. But he specifically quotes Amos 9, 11, and 12. So if you, if you still have your Bibles open to Acts 15, look at verses 16 and 17. After this, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What is James getting at with these verses? God promised that after judging Israel and Judah for their rebellion, he would also restore them. He would restore them so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. He had a people to get from among the Gentiles. And he was going to rebuild the tent of David so that Israel would actually accomplish one of the things they were supposed to do all along. Which was to be a light to the nations. Was Israel going to be the answer to this? It is apparent to James, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas that the Lord doesn't do, intend to do that through the law. He's not rebuilding the same thing. We can look at places like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Matthew chapter 9, and Hebrews chapter 8 to see that the Lord's promise of a new covenant means that the old one is abolished, it is gone. The Lord is not rebuilding the tents of David so that they can fall again by the same means that they fell over and over and over again in the history of Israel. The tent of David that he references here was rebuilt through the life, death, and resurrection of the perfect son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. The temple of his body was torn down Because of the sinful lawlessness of his people. We who look at the Lord's holiness, right? We we sung of his holiness. We look at his holiness. We look at his commands. His good and perfect law. And at the same time, we think, first of all, that God has no right to demand that life from us. I'm the captain of my ship. I determine what's right and wrong. So we think that. And then at the same time, I said we're, we're messed up apart from God's grace. At the same time, you know what we think? When I die, God's going to welcome me into heaven. I've spent my life thinking his law and his holiness are nothing to be regarded. Don't care. I set the standards. I make the laws. God answers to me. And then when I see him face to face he's going to say, "Hey, great job. Totally disregarded me your entire life. Mocked my laws. Mocked my holiness. Said I wasn't real." And welcome. Welcome into eternal glory. Thank you. Thank you. We are that that's the the extent of our wickedness. We we say we get to be the lawmaker and the lawgiver and the judge and such that when we stand before God, he's going to have to let us in. We really are something else. For people like that, Christ came and died. Jesus Christ died for people like that people who reject his law, people who use his law to say, like, look, I'm better than everybody else because I'm better at keeping it. People who ignore that he exists, these are the people that Jesus came and died for. That all who look upon him with eyes of faith, and even this faith is grace, believing that his work is sufficient, will be saved from the wrath that we deserve. For our rebellion, for our rejection, for our lawlessness. The matter has been weighed, and now it's time to settle the matter. The conclusion of the matter is this, says James. We should trouble the Gentiles no further. Salvation is by grace through faith. I've said it probably 40 times in this sermon. It's the heart of this passage. And it's the heart of the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith. If the church ever attempts to add works of righteousness to the category of contributes to my salvation, the church is wrong. That is heresy. If you are laboring under that burden today, the burden that says maybe God needs a little bit more out of you before he counts you righteous, hear what James says. These are good words. Trouble them no further. Trouble them no further. Let them know that our God has saved without distinction and it was all of his grace. Let them know that the work is finished. Let them know that everything we have and everything we do is grace. And you need to hear that today too. If you are troubled of soul because you have not done enough to make God happy, good news, you're right, you haven't. But Christ has done enough to make God happy on your behalf forever. As we go to the table this morning, Let's meditate on that reality that we can both acknowledge, right? We can acknowledge it together as we celebrate. My works are never gonna merit my salvation and Christ's provision has eternally merited my salvation. Rest in that and rejoice in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good for us to take a moment and acknowledge in silence for the believer in Christ where we have fallen short. Maybe as it pertains to this passage, maybe we are the people who use your commands to try to elevate ourselves over another. Or maybe we are the people Who labor from day to day thinking, I haven't done enough to make God happy with me. They seem like two opposite extremes, and yet the solution is the same it is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to know that we are all on level ground at the foot of the cross. The cross declares to us how deep our need is, how vile our sin is, and it declares at the same time how loved we are. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to add to the work of Christ or when we try to boast in our own flesh. The work of Christ is finished, He has died for our sins. He has been raised from the dead in victory over sin and the grave. And all we know is grace. You paid it all, Jesus. Father, if there are some here this morning who are intending to go at it on their own, to try and live a good enough life to please you. Uh, Be gracious, Lord, to reveal to them that our works are never sufficient in light of your holiness. That we are not God, you are God. And the holy God calls us, come all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. May today be the day of faith and salvation for some. For those who are yours, Lord, as we take the Lord's table this morning, remind us of our great need and your great provision, and that because of Christ, because of his work, you see us as righteous and clean in your sight. And may it be, Lord, that we would, by your grace, live lives of worship as a response to the great mercy that we have received. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.